Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and this morning we are broadcasting live from downtown Dallas. Today we will be discussing The Economist's recently published report, Turkey Anchors Away, with its author and Europe editor of the magazine, John Pete. I'd like to welcome all Global IQ participants from around the world. As you submit your live questions for John through the online forum, please let us know where you're listening from. And a special thanks to World Affairs Council and Dallas Business Club members, Economist subscribers, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps. If this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to check out previous Global IQ audiocasts available on iTunes and the Council's website, dfwworld.org. Global IQ is sponsored by Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Club Corps, the world leader in private clubs. During the program, I will ask our audience three questions on Turkey. The first listener to submit the answer correctly will receive a prize, so stay tuned for your chance to win. And of course, this program would not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their expertise. It is now my pleasure to introduce John Pete. John has an extensive history with The Economist, including stints as business affairs editor, Brussels correspondent, executive editor, surveys editor, and finance correspondent. John currently serves as Europe editor from his office in London and specializes in global trade, European economies, politics, and banking. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hello. Much of the news related to Turkey, uh, certainly recently, uh, centers around the perceived or inherent tension between the country's secular foundation, dating back, of course, to Ataturk, and the recent move towards what your newspaper and others have sometimes referred to as mildly Islam. Uh, this was demonstrated uh, Friday, uh, October 31st, or uh, last in Ankara, at the site of a large military parade marking the 87th anniversary of the Turkish Republic. Beyond the military pageantry, there was an underlying story, and that was that Abdullah Gul, Turkey's president, changed the long-standing tradition by holding just one reception where women wearing the Islamic headscarf were invited and could be present. Can you sort of uh, tell us a bit more about how that all came about and, and, and what does it really mean for where Turkey is going? Well, I mean, in a way, it's been a, this has been a running argument ever since the present um, AK party, which is the mildly Islamist party that forms the present government, came into office in 2002. And one of the issues that has been um, knocked around is how tolerant should the new Turkey be of wearing the headscarf? I mean, to most countries like ours or, or yours, it seems odd that they should be intolerant at all. But under the Ataturk's strict secularist republic, the headscarf was not allowed in state institutions, not even allowed in in uh, universities. And gradually, the AKP have been chipping away at that. They tried to pass a law allowing the headscarf in universities, but it was rejected by the Constitutional Court. And now the, the practice seems to be just to sort of do it on sort of quietly. And as you say, Abdullah Gul at his reception last week um, only held one reception. Some people then chose to boycott that reception. Um, the headscarf is now being allowed in some universities. And gradually, I think it's going to be chipped away at and the headscarf will be tolerated more. To, to set the stage for our, our conversation during the next hour, tell us how you chose the title Anchors Away for the special report. 
Well, I, it refers to a sort of thought that I've, I've had about Turkey for some years. Um, I mean, Turkey, is, as, as you and listeners probably know, has been through a very difficult period, really, more or less, since the Second World War. I mean, the politics of the place has been unstable. The economy has generally done quite badly. It had a terrible time in the 1990s, culminating in, in a huge economic crisis um, just 10 years ago. And the notion got about that really Turkey was such an unstable place and politi- politically and economically that it, it kind of needed some kind of guidance from outside. It's a familiar notion for, for emerging countries. And the guidance that people lit on for Turkey were twofold. The first was the IMF. You know, they had many IMF programs. They got into balance of payments difficulties, and the IMF was always was often called in to help them sort out their, their finances and their economy. Um, and the second was Turkey's aspirations to join the European club, the European Union, um, which obviously, if it was going to do, it needed to make a lot of changes and democratic changes, constitutional changes to, to fit with the European Union's sort of liberal democratic principles. Um, and those have been what I think many people see as the two anchors for Turkey for, for, for many years. Now, the first anchor, the IMF one, has gone because the Turkish economy has been so successful in the past five, six years and continues today. It's the fastest growing uh, economy in the OECD. It's, av- it's, avoided, it's avoided many of the problems of, of, of the Eurozone economy. Um, it doesn't need the IMF anymore. It's now, it's now in pretty good shape, so it can make up its own policies as it goes along. And the European anchor has weakened considerably because so many European leaders say they don't want Turkey to join the European Union, that the pull of making changes in order to qualify to join the European Union has diminished quite a lot. So in that sense, Turkey's sort of moving ahead with slightly weaker anchors than it's used to. And the question I'm asking is, is that okay? Can Turkey progress without these anchors? Um, And the answer is up to a point. Well, we'll go into more detail about the situation with the EU shortly, but um, tell me a little bit about uh, the current foreign minister, Ahmed Dabudoglu, and uh, I understand in 2001 he wrote a book, Strategic Depth, which maybe anchors, as you would say, his, his foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, he's an interesting man. Uh, actually, his his thoughts on this have just been echoed by, by President Abdullah himself, who happens to be in London, because he's he's receiving the Chatham House Prize from the Queen tomorrow, and I've just heard him speaking. Um, the, the idea that Davutoglu and, and Gul and Erdogan, the Prime Minister, have in the foreign policy field, I think essentially is that for many years, Turkey was a sort of what you might call an unthinking member of, of NATO and of the West, and it saw itself during particularly the Cold War as a sort of bulwark against the Soviet Union, aspiring to join the European club, very friendly to the United States, by, um, by extension also friendly to Israel. And it didn't have many relations with any of its neighbors, including its Muslim neighbors and countries that used to be part of the old big Ottoman Empire. And that was the sort of choice that it made, particularly during the Cold War years. What David Tolu and, and his uh, other leaders have done since, um, since his book and since he became influential in Turkish foreign policy is to say, we want to still have good relations with the West. They do insist on that, and they particularly want good relations with the United States and with, the, with Europe. But where they used to neglect places like Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, Egypt, um, and the Balkans, they now see this is their neighborhood. They should have strong relations and have a big active role in this part of the world as well. Um, and they see no reason why they shouldn't do both. Critics of Davutoglu say, look, if you're going to have closer relations with places like Syria or even more with a place like Iran, uh, you're bound to be damaging your relations with the West. And 
And the trick that he is trying to manage, and some people say he's doing it and some people say he's not, is indeed to have relations with some of the people, some countries that are rather anti-Western, but at the same time be a pro-Western country himself. And in fact, at one point he said Turkey is not an issue, it is an actor. I, I, I quoted that was something he said to me when I, when I sat down with him for, for an interview. And I think what he means by that is that those particularly actually in the American press, who have this year been saying things like, oh, we've lost Turkey, or Turkey somehow has gone, gone away from the West, and Turkey, you know, there is an issue about, about Turkey moving out of our orbit and becoming a sort of pro-Islamic or Eastern power in some way. His answer to that is, you know, that treats Turkey as, as an issue. It isn't an issue. Turkey is a big country. It has a big weight. It's an actor, you know. It is part of the West, but it also has big influence. It's the biggest economy in its region. It's a democracy. It's liberal, it's free market, uh, you know, this is a country that, that counts in, in the Middle East. And, and this was really shown uh, just a few months ago with uh, um, its voting, or, or actually, I guess, voted against the sanctions uh, against Iran uh, and uh, did not abstain and has been really acting in concert with, with Brazil. How does that all play out? Well, I think that exposes one of the sort of difficult bits of the Davutoglu doctrine, if you can call it that. I mean, it's, uh, it seems to me perfectly fine for him to say he wants to have a, have, have, to play a role in his neighborhood. And there's every reason why Turkey should play a role in its neighborhood. It's the biggest economy in the region. It has a big army. It has a lot of diplomatic uh, influence uh, in its neighborhood, and that extends as, as far as Africa. But when, you, when he got to the point, Davutoglu and, and the government, of, of sort of trying to do a bit of freelance negotiation, negotiating with Iran, um, it put them in a slightly awkward position because the United States and the West were trying to impose tougher sanctions on Iran over the nuclear issue. Turkey, which neighbors Iran, um, is very unhappy about the idea of sanctions on, on, on a neighbor with which it has a lot of trade. Uh, but on the other hand, Turkey wants to be sort of seen as part of the West. So it got itself into what I see as rather an awkward situation where it did actually vote against a resolution um, for tightening sanctions on Iran. And and incurred some criticism and, and I think may have, have lost you know, some of its friends in the United States and elsewhere as a result. There have been reports that the United States was, quote, furious about Turkey's actions on this vote, but in other, saw another press report where the Turkish government said the United States had been kept informed all along the way. Um, what do you think is the true story there? Was the United States surprised of, 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 of Turkey's strategy or not? I think when it came to the vote, by the time they actually voted no, the, the U.S. and others had had enough signals to see what was coming. And the Turks knew perfectly well that it, the sanctions resolution would go through anyway. Um, they even said that they, they lobbied one or two of the other members of the Security Council. I think in particular Lebanon and Bosnia had, had rotating votes on the Security Council. And they wanted to make sure that the resolution went through, but that they could still say to their Iranian friends, well, we tried to stop it. So, yes, there is a certain amount of diplomatic game playing here. Um, and I think the idea that the United States was sort of shocked and furious on the day is, is not quite right. However, if you put this whole incident together with Turkey's deteriorating relationship with Israel, which we have seen uh, particularly this year, but it, but it started even last year, uh, you would say that um, it, it has not exactly infuriated, but it's certainly lost quite a lot of friends in the United States, including in the United States Congress. Um, and some Turks may say, well, that's a price you pay if you want to play a role in, in the Middle East. But others may say, well, you know, you should be quite careful how far you push that. 
And, and turning to Israel, I was reading yesterday and saw that uh, according to the Turkish media, there's this what's called the Red Book, which is amended every five years, which uh, identifies countries that are, are perceived as threats to Turkey. And for the very first time, Israel was, uh, quote, a strategic threat to Turkey. Um, did, did you see this? And, and what do you think that means? I, I didn't see that. I didn't actually see the Red Book. But I mean, it is it is clearly true. And the government says, and the president himself, President Gul, has said, relations with Israel um, will not be the same again after the after this attack on the on the flotilla that was trying to take aid to Gaza, which resulted in the death of eight Turkish citizens and one Turkish-American citizen. And the, the Turks uh, were pretty angered by this. I mean, it wasn't a sort of official government convoy or anything, but they were still pretty angry to have loss of life inflicted by the army of another country, uh, which, with which they had, had, had a close alliance. Um, and I yeah. think, that, you know, they're going to take some time to get over that. You know, of course, Turkey is not an Arab country, but if you looked at it, it's probably one of the most popular countries in the Arab world. Um, and, and one of the, the U.S. enjoys very low popularity uh, in, in Turkey. Is uh, Turkey now you know, being perceived um, by the Arab countries, in a sense, as, as a country that can help lead it in some of its issues? I don't think I would use the word lead um, in connection with Turkey. I mean, Turkey is a, is a, is a sort of peculiar country. It's, sort of, it's a very important country, and its strategic situation is, is very significant, sort of between the European landmass and Asia, and it's sort of at the crossroads between Russia and the Middle East. So it, 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 obviously, it, it obviously plays a role just geographically. Um, but it isn't, as you say, it's not an Arab country. So I don't think it could, ever, it could ever present itself as the leader of the Arab world or even of the, the wider Muslim world. What it is, and I think what they're trying to play on, is a rare example of a successful economy that combines that with being a practicing liberal democracy. And there are frankly very few of those in the Islam, Islamic world, right the way across from, from Europe through to Asia. You don't get many cases like that. And I think Muslims generally in countries like Egypt, um, perhaps even in Iran, are, are looking at Turkey and thinking, you know, that is, that's quite a nice example of, of how we might be one day. And you know, certainly many of the Arab countries are concerned about Iran's growing power. Um, do they view Turkey then as a country that could be a, a counterbalance to Iran? I think to some extent they may do in some areas. Um, yes, I think, that's, I, I think there is some truth in that. Um, and I mean, actually, because the, the Turkey, and particularly the Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has had such a dust-up with Israel this year and, and has, has been so um, sort of quite aggressive about what he said about Israel, I think that has also inclined many in the Arab world to say, look, you know, here is a new country that's standing up for our, for our interests. You know, you, you touched on this about the relations with the United States and how perhaps they've deteriorated somewhat. Um, you know, we still do not have an ambassador there. I guess we've not had an ambassador since July. Uh, ambassador Richard Oney, who by all accounts is certainly very well qualified with his past experience, yes. his confirmation has been blocked. What are the major reasons for this, and uh, how do you see it evolving? Do you think by any chance the uh, um, new Congress will be uh, more, more rapid in, in confirming his nomination or not? Well, um, I mean, I think this is a domestic issue more than anything else. Um, you know, it's, 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 
these these things happen. I mean, it's happening with the U.S. ambassador to Azerbaijan, who is also, um, which is also it's a smaller country, but it's a very significant country and and a, and a key oil producer in the in next next door to Turkey. And the nomination for ambassador there is also being held up by by the U.S. Congress. Um, it just happens from time to time that nominations for ambassador are held up. My understanding is that some way will be found, if necessary, by using what's called a recess appointment to get the ambassadorial nomination through um, for for Turkey. Uh, I do think more generally that um, it is true that Turkish public opinion is much less enthusiastic about the United States than it used to be. And I think that does reflect, um, you know, it reflects things like the Iraq war. It reflects things like their changing view, the changing view of Israel in Turkey. I mean, I guess that would make the job of the ambassador even more important in, in Ankara. I'm looking at a RAND study that recently came out, and it said that only 14% of Turks polled viewed United States policy favorably. That's Which very low. Extremely, right. And it, uh, it is much lower than it used to be. I mean, I, one of my, I, I quoted another study by the German Marshall Fund, but it also came up with, with low numbers. I mean, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, Turkish public opinion about the U.S. and U.S. policy was fairly similar to the rest of Europe. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a group that were hostile, yes, but, you know, most Turks would have been in favor. And I think, you know, that has definitely gone down measurably. We have a question from Ed, and he asks, how should Israel deal with Turkey? As we looked at it from the Turkish perspective, but specifically Ed says, how should Israel uh, focus its relations? Well, frankly, I think that, I mean, you know, obviously in the end, Turkey is now in the camp of those with the United States and I guess most of Europe who would like to see a settlement of the, of the Israel-Palestine dispute, which is, which is, which is obviously the, the, the underlying problem here. So, you know, clearly in the long run, if Israel could, do, could, could make some more concessions that might help that forward, that would make a, a big difference. But I also do think that the Israeli government has been a bit too rigid about refusing to accept that any mistake were made when it, it, it sent in troops to, to stop this convoy that was going towards Gaza. Uh, it seems to me from outside that if they could have found some way of saying, you know, we're very sorry, we didn't intend to do this, it was, you know, there were misunderstandings, um, it, 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 might, it might have made a difference. I mean, the, the, the impression in Turkey is that the Israelis sort of said, it's all your fault that, you know, our soldiers ended up killing nine citizens on board the leading ship. And, and the Turks, you know, don't find that, don't find that acceptable. We have uh, an opportunity now to do our first trivia question, and the winner will receive the 2011 Economist Wall Calendar. So remember, be the first one to answer correctly, and you'll receive the wall calendar. Due to what officials are calling a protocol crisis, Turkish Foreign Minister Hamed Davutoglu and his party waited at the airport for two hours after arriving in which country this past weekend? United Arab Emirates, Iran, or Jordan? So we'll see who gets the correct answer on that in just a minute. You know, every year there's an attempt uh, in the U.S. Congress to ad adopt a resolution condemning the Armenian genocide in, in 1915. Now that Turkey has less support in Congress, do you feel that this resolution might pass? And if so, what would be the immediate impact on U.S.-Turkish relations? Uh, it seems to me that there must be, if you're looking at this from a Turkish point of view, there must be a risk that this resolution will pass. Um, as you say, we go through this um, this exercise almost every year. Um, 
parliaments of some other countries have passed resolutions about the the Armenian genocide, um, but the Turks are particularly exercised about the threat of uh, such a resolution passing in in the U.S. Congress. They will fight hard to to stop it happening, and a lot of people in a, in the United States, including in the administration and among U.S. business, will I think be putting some pressure on congressmen to say, you know, this is just a gesture. It could cause a lot of trouble. It's really not worth going through this sort of exercise, which will have no impact in, on, on the ground um, and will actually just mean that, you know, Turkish hostility, if you like, to some parts of the United States will increase. And there are people who also argue that if you do go on wanting to pass resolutions about the Armenian genocide, you make it harder and not easier for Turkey and Armenia themselves to reach a reconciliation. Um, as you know, they, 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 there was some move towards a reconciliation between Turkey and Armenia a year or two back. And that process is still going forward in rather sort of hesitantly. And that's one thing that's very interesting about the current government. I mean, it appears, and maybe it's because of a desire, we'll talk about whether or not how strong a desire it is to be a part of the European Union, but it seems that Turkey's foreign policy has really tried to tackle some of the tough issues like Armenia or Cyprus or, or the issues in, with, with the Kurds. Yes, indeed. Um, I mean, on the foreign policy front, um, another of this, Mr. Davutoglu's um, slogans, if you like, is to have zero problems with the neighbours, um, uh, whereas Turkey traditionally had a lot of problems with its neighbours. Um, and they, are, they do try every now and then to sort out their differences with countries like Greece, or in this case with, with Armenia, um, and as you mentioned, Cyprus. Um, they're working a little bit to do what they can to try and improve their relations all around their, their neighbourhood. And I think their desire to join the European Union is, is a part of that as well. It's, it's always difficult for the European Union to take in a country that has big arguments with its, in its neighborhood. John, can we drill down for a while about Cyprus? Maybe help us understand it in historical context, uh, because it really is critical to understand for uh, Turkey's admission into the EU. And how do you see that uh, progressing over time? I have to say, at the moment, I'm quite gloomy about Cyprus. I mean, this is a long-running conflict. Um, you can trace it back hundreds of years, um, if, 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 if you really like and have the time. But, I mean, the more recent fact is that, is that for the past 40 years, Cyprus has been a divided island because there was an attempt by the majority Greek Cypriot population to integrate the country into Greece, to make it part of Greece. This is back in the early 1970s when Greece was actually run by a, a military dictatorship. Um, uh, that attempt led to a Turkish invasion because they wanted to, to, to defend so-called the 20% of the population that are Turkish Cypriots, and the Turkish army took over the, uh, the northern third of the country, and they're still there today. Settling this problem has, has foxed successive people who've tried to do it. Um, there are talks going on to try and reach an amicable agreement whereby, you know, each side will respect each other's way of life and each other's um, sovereign um, issues, but be part of a single, what they call bizonal, bicommunal federation. Um, but getting talks, getting these talks to succeed is extremely difficult because every time they sit down, they start quarrelling about what happened in the, when the fighting was going on, what should happen to the property, what should happen about trade, um, how you should organise people travelling across the frontier between the two parts of Cyprus, uh, and it's it's this this problem. It will take a, a great deal of effort, including some support from outside, to resolve.
And for Turkey to be admitted into the EU, must the Cyprus situation be resolved? Does Cyprus have a, a, a block on, on, on its admission, or how does yeah, that work? Cyprus does have a block, because, I mean, one of the, during the course of one attempt to settle the Cyprus problem, which, which took place in sort of 2003, 2004, that happened just before the, the official Cypriot government, which is the Greek Cypriot side of the, of, of the country, uh, was admitted as a member of the European Union. Um, I, many people think, and I rather share this view, that the tactics there went went wrong. I mean, the European Union eventually said to the Greek Cypriots, look, we'll let you in as a member of the European Union, even if you don't settle your problem with the Turkish Cypriots. And once they'd said that, the Greek Cypriots lost any incentive to say, well, okay, we'll, we'll sit down and solve this problem, because they got into the European Union anyway. But now that they are a member of the European Union, the, the treaty position is absolutely clear. Any country in the European Union can veto a, 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 another country that wants to join. So it's extremely hard to see how Turkey could ever join without solving the Cyprus problem. I mean, if, if the, Turkish, the question of Turkish entry into the European Union doesn't come up for another 10 or 15 years, then we maybe have time to try and do it. But if, if, if Cyprus ends up being partitioned, which is what some people are talking about, then I think that'll be a big obstacle to, to Turkey getting in. And let me ask you, how does that vote take place in Cyprus? Is it a referendum among the po population, or is it the assembly, or how, how, who, who makes that decision? The issue of a veto is just the government. Who The, the government of, of, of the country can veto um, uh, a, a new acceding country. And indeed, you, some of your people may remember that France vetoed Britain for many years when Britain tried to join the European Union, and that was simply a decision of the president of France. The issue of a settlement in Cyprus, if there is a settlement, a, a new sort of scheme to set up this bizonal, bicommunal federation and to unite the two parts of the island would have to be approved by a referendum in both parts of the island. And that's where things went wrong in 2004, because the Turkish Cypriots voted overwhelmingly in favor of the settlement that was on the table from the United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan. But the Greek Cypriots voted against. And one of the reasons they voted against was because they knew they were going to join the European Union anyway, whichever way they voted. We have a question from John, and it goes back to our earlier discussion, but I think it, 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 we, we should address it. Uh, John asks, what was Nancy Pelosi's role in pushing the Armenian genocide issue, and is she still involved given her Armenian constituency? Uh, my understanding is yes. Um, a lot of this comes from California. Um, I mean, the Calif it so happens that California has a sizable Armenian population, and it was certainly true the last time round that Nancy Pelosi, representing um, her district in California, was a leading player in saying, you know, we want this, what happened, the events of 1915 to be, to be officially recognized as, uh, as we, we think they were a genocide. And I would have thought, even though she's now minority rather than, um, rather than speaker, she and some other Californian congressman will be playing that role again. But, but as I say, there are going to be people out there saying, you know, this, whatever, you, whatever the rights and wrongs of whether it was or was not a genocide, a decision to actually sort of say it was at congressional level could further um, damage relations with Turkey. And, you know, we would try and we'll try and stop that happening. You know, going back to the European Union, John, um, is, is there sort of a middle ground? Um, Germany's uh, uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel has called for Turkey to have what she called a privileged partnership instead of full membership. I mean, it's, it's you know increasingly clear that Germany and certainly France has, is very much against uh, Turkey's EU membership. 
That's absolutely true, and 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 indeed, they're not the only countries where whose leaders are against the the Netherlands. Is a, is 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 in some ways an even harder place because the the current Dutch government depends for support on on a on a far right party, whose leader is very very hostile to the idea of Turkey ever joining. So so yes, there is a lot of there is a lot of anti-Turkey joining the European Union feeling out there. Um, and yes, some people's response to that is to say, well, let's look for some other creative relationship of some kind. Call it what you will. The words privileged partnership are no longer used because the Turks got very angry about that. And so people are trying to look for a different formula. I'm not convinced any such formula would ever work because it's extremely difficult to come up with a formulation for the relationship with Turkey that doesn't look like a rejection of their membership. And, and, and if the Turks are offered something that is not membership of the European Union, which they first applied for over 50 years ago, they first, they first expressed interest in 50 years ago, if they're told you can't have membership, but here's some other alternative arrangement, I think they would say, we don't want an alternative arrangement. I'm sorry, if that's all you're prepared to offer, offer us, we'll walk away. Well, specifically, do Turks still want to join the EU? Um, I know in your, your special report you had a survey from the German Marshall Fund, and maybe you could comment on that. No, it's true. I mean, the, the truth is that countries' view of the EU go, go countries' views of the EU do go up and down. I mean, and I'm sure you and you and your your listeners will know that the British views of the European Union go up and down, and quite a lot of people in Britain have a rather low opinion of the European Union. But I, the, the problem in Turkey is that I think. At the time that they, the, membership, the current membership negotiations began, which was five years ago, there was quite a feeling of enthusiasm that what, at last the European Union had recognized that Turkey was a plausible candidate and, and had decided unanimously, it was a unanimous decision taken by all 27 countries in the European Union, they decided they would open negotiations for Turkey to become a full member. And many people pointed out at the time that no country has ever open negotiations for membership of the European Union without at some stage, sometimes it's taken a long time, but at some stage they have been offered membership. So um, there was quite a lot of enthusiasm. But the trouble is that when European leaders like President Sarkozy of, of France or Chancellor Merkel of Germany then stand up and say, we don't want Turkey to be a member, that does have an impact on public opinion inside Turkey as well. And that's, I think, the reason why many Turks have sort of feel less enthusiastic about joining the EU today. And David Cameron says it is just wrong, however, to say that Turkey can guard the camp but not be allowed to sit in the tent. That is a, that is a British view. It's not only a British view. It's a view of, uh, of countries like Italy, Spain, Sweden, many of the countries of Central Europe. They think that um, if Turkey qualifies, um, and you do have to go through a, a very difficult adjustment process in order to meet the criteria to join the EU, they think it's just not, uh, not plausible and not sensible to say, you know, we want you to be a friend of ours and we want you to be pro-Western and we want to trade with you, but we're not willing to let you join the club. John, tomorrow the EU will do its annual review of Turkey's admission and uh, understand that Turkey will be sharply criticized regarding its uh, press freedom. You as a journalist, and uh, obviously you've had your uh, experience in Turkey, but tell us about uh, how, 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 how I suspect it's much more difficult for the Turkish domestic press than for you, but, but give us your, your thoughts on that. 
Yes, it is. This is not an issue. I mean, unlike some countries where press freedom is a concern, this is not an issue that worries um, foreign, foreign, the foreign media. Um, I mean, the, the, there is no sort of systematic harassment of, of foreign journalists. There isn't really systematic harassment of Turkish journalists either. I mean, there are, the Turkish press is very, it's strong, it's vibrant. There's a lot of different opinions expressed in the Turkish press um, and, and, and on television. But over the last few years of this government, and particularly this prime minister, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, there have been a, a disturbing number of cases where he's got he's got angry with particular columnists who've criticised him, or he's fallen out with certain television anchors or television programmes and made his views very very clear. And certain people, certain columnists have been sacked. And and indeed, there are a number of journalists who are who are being prosecuted under under various media media laws. And I think there are something like 50 journalists currently actually in jail in Turkey. Um, and the European Union is understandably concerned about this and says, you know, that's not how a, a Western free market liberal country should be. The Turkish government does respond by saying the media is totally free and anybody can write whatever they like. But the climate in Turkey is, I think, regrettably um, one in which, yes, some journalists do feel slightly constrained in what they can write and say. Well, I'm seeing here Reporters Without Borders this year, that being 2010, ranked Turkey 138th in terms of media freedom out of 178 countries, and that was down from 98th out of 167th in 2005. So uh, certainly uh, it appears that there are some, some challenges there. There are indeed, uh, and I think it would be fair to say, and this is what the European Commission will be saying tomorrow, that that sort of ranking and that sort of behaviour is not consistent with being a member of the European Union. I mean, there are other countries in the European Union that have also been actually in the European Union that are, have sometimes been criticised over their over their relations with the media, particularly some of the new countries from Eastern Europe. But uh, Turkey clearly needs to improve its freedom of the press and, and treatment of the media. Uh, if it if it seriously does want to join the European Union, Turkey's economy bounced back from the Great Recession better than most European countries. Uh, can you give us some insight, your insight about how the, why, why that happened? Yeah, I mean, Turkey did have a recession. Um, I mean, the Turks are talking up their economy at the moment and saying, look, we're doing very well. But, you know, they, they shouldn't escape the fact that they did suffer from the world recession um, uh, in 2009. Uh, so some bounce back with a, a country that has a big manufacturing sector was perhaps quite likely, and we're seeing a bounce back in some other manufacturing countries as well. Um, but I think it is, it is striking that the Turkish economic performance in general has improved considerably in the past seven or eight years. It's finally got its macroeconomic policies uh, in, into sort of good order, and it no longer has very high inflation, although inflation is, is still actually about 8%, eight, eight, 9%, but it used to be sort of 75 or 100% in, in the 1990s. So the, the, the macroeconomic background is good, and the banking sector is much healthier than it used to be. And I think that, combined with a sort of fairly consistent um, government, because we've had the same party in government for the last eight years, has, has unleashed Turkish entrepreneurs, particularly in Anatolia, who have developed some, you know, really very good manufacturing and other products, which they're selling all around the world. Can you give, and, and Dagmar asks, can you discuss the economic aspects and Turkey's role and opportunities in the global economy? Well, it is. I mean, Turkey, because of where it is, obviously, Turkey, is, Turkey has, you know, uh, plenty of opportunities to, to, to become a relatively low-cost 
exporter of manufacturers to, to Europe, and, and it's still doing a lot of that. I mean, the European Union accounts for about half of Turkish exports, and those exports are primarily things like cars, televisions, DVD players, furniture, textiles, shoes. They, they are sort of fairly low-end manufacturing, and the Turks have got very good at it. The challenge for them in relation to Europe, and I think increasingly the rest of the world, is that they need to move up up the value chain a bit and start making more high-tech high tech goods. I mean, Turkey is not a country that has natural resources, so it's, it's, not going to be, it's, it's never going to be a big exporter of natural resources. But it is a strong country for manufacturing. It's especially strong in the construction area. You find, you find many um, airports, roads, bridges, and, and, and highways being built by Turkish companies, not just in Turkey, but all around the region and increasingly across, across Europe as well. Um, these are things that are, that, that, that are going to last. I mean, you know, they, they, it's, it's, it's a good, these are good businesses to be in. But I think if I were advising the Turks, I would say, you know, look out because there are always competitors around the corner, such as most notably places like China and India, that can also do these things. Uh, you know, you need, you need constantly to be ready to innovate and move up the value chain to, to, if you're going to be a competitive country. You know, more and more now we're seeing articles about aging populations in different countries and how that will uh, Im impact their growth. Um, Turkey, some have predicted, may become the world's 10th biggest economy by 2050. Um, do you agree that that's a possibility? And if so, or if not, what are some of the, the, the issues that will uh, impact that? I think it's very much possible um, on the basis of the last 10 years. I think they might even become one of the top 10 economies earlier than 2050. Um, I mean, part of that story is the one we've just been talking about. They happen to have had, you know, relatively good economic growth recently, certainly by comparison with the rest of Europe. Um, uh, you know, some people are talking about Turkey as a sort of another member of the BRIC club, sort of um, I've heard people talk about brick plus T um, of emerging markets that are, that, are, that are growing fast. They're obviously not growing as fast as India and China, but they're, 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 they're doing pretty well um, among, among the emerging markets, and that's one of the reasons they're a very active member of the G20 club of, of economic countries that, that, meet at, that are going to meet at the summit in, in Seoul. And the other thing about Turkey is that Turkish demographics do look different from certainly the rest of Europe. I mean, the average age of the Turkish population is about 29, whereas the average age in Europe is about 40. And the Turkish population continues to grow where most European countries are either stable or even actually falling. And that means that by around the middle of the century, Turkey will have a population of perhaps 100 million, and it's likely to be, you know, quite considerably better off than it is today and, and become quite a large economy. Um, let me announce who the winner is of our trivia question for the 2011 Economist Wall calendar. The question was, due to what officials are calling a protocol crisis, a Turkish, Turkish Foreign Minister Ahmed Devoglu and his party waited at the airport for two hours after arriving in which country this past weekend? The correct answer was United Arab Emirates. Congratulations, Chris. We have a question from Debbie. Given the changes in Turkish-American relationships, what, do country, what does the country's military cooperation look like? While Turkey is a member of NATO, many say that they have uh, done much to undermine U.S. foreign policy objectives. Uh, you know, we touched upon some of that, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how um, it is impacting NATO. Well, I think from the military point of view, um, the, Turkish, the Turkish military is still very firmly embedded into NATO, and they do have 
for example, they have some troops in, in Afghanistan. Um, and, and I think they would regard themselves still as, as an extremely important active member of, of NATO. Indeed, they have the second biggest armed forces in NATO after, after the United States. Um, but it is true that foreign policy does, does sort of overlap a little bit with military. I mean, you perhaps would feel it should overlap a bit with military. Um, and as Turkish foreign policy engages more with its region, including with places like Iran, I think that may have a, uh, may over time have a bit of an impact on the military. I would still regard Turkey as a pretty solid Western ally on 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 military, the military ground. But I think it would be it would be fair to say that's one that's worth watching. Just a week ago, um, a bomber wounded 32 in Istanbul. Um, I don't know yet if anyone's claimed res responsibility for that. Uh, can you give us uh, your insight? Sorry, say that again. He wounded. There, there, there was that bombing in Istanbul where 32 people were wounded. Uh, I believe it was on October 31st. Yeah, yeah, and, no, uh, that's right. Well, I mean, it's it's it, I, the answer is I don't know. I'm afraid, um, and my impression is that nobody else knows really. I mean, the, the view among official Turkey is that this this must have been the work of of Kurdish terrorists linked to the PKK, which is the Turkish, the Kurdish terrorist organization that, that carries out attacks like this, um, nominally on behalf of, they're fighting a sort of campaign on behalf of the Kurds who live in the southeast, mostly in the southeast of the country. Um, the PKK itself was very firm in denying it had anything to do with this. And in the past, the PKK has accepted responsibility for, for many of the atrocities it has committed. So if their line is, we didn't do it, then it may Maybe that it was a renegade part within the PKK, as, as you see in, in, these, in, in these terrorist organizations. The PKK has recently extended its unilateral ceasefire. So nominally, the PKK is no longer staging incidents like this. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of tension over a number of years, and you know, as many as perhaps 40,000 people have died uh, of, of Kurds and, and so forth because of the, uh, the, the friction between the Turkey and, 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 and the Kurdish population. What is the situation now with that, and is there not tension and disagreement between the army and the AK about how to handle that? I think this is a very difficult issue for for the future of of the country and indeed for the future of this of this government. Um, I mean, as you say, this has been a pretty nasty campaign, uh, really, ever since the PKK got going in in the late 1980s, and it's and it has cost a lot of lives, most of them, most of them actually Kurdish lives in in the southeast of the country. But the military has also lost quite a lot of soldiers there. Um, for, for, for quite a long time, the Turkish response to, to the PKK and indeed to Kurds in general was, was to be pretty firm, to stamp them down, not to give any concessions towards Kurdish feelings, um, not to allow Kurdish language education in schools, and certainly not to, not to make any concessions towards people who they thought might want to break the country up and declare a, a sort of separate Republic of Kurdistan. Um, and the army was pretty vicious in the way it carried this campaign out, particularly in, in the southeast. But I think many Turks, including in the present government, do now recognize two things. The first is that you can't solve this problem militarily. You can't simply say, send the army in and tell them to stamp out anybody who's, you know, agitating or threatening to shoot people or, or planning bombs or anything like that. There is not a military solution to something where you have 
as many as 14 million people living in the southeast of the country who have some sympathy for the the aspirations of their people to be recognized as a people. Um, and the second thing is that I think they also recognize that although Kurds in Turkey would like to have some of their rights accepted, probably including the right to education in the Kurdish language and certainly to seeing television in Kurdish and things like that, um, they, most of them do not want to break off and form a separate country. They would be quite willing to have you know, more delegation of powers, more, um, more autonomy to do what they like um, and, and to run their own lives, but to be a part of, of, the, of the Republic of Turkey. And that's what some other countries have gone through, including, for example, Britain with Northern Ireland. Um, you can resolve these things by giving people a little bit more autonomy. Uh, we have two questions, and they're related. Maria asks, is the AK party a religious party? And then Hassan poses this question. On September 12th, Turkey passed a referendum that strengthened the AK government and weakened, or depending on your perspective, weakened the military. C can you elaborate on, on both of these? Yes, I think the, first, the answer to the first question clearly is that the AK party does have some religious um, tinges to it. Um, I mean, as we have been discussing, Turkey is, a, is a, a fiercely secular republic and has been ever since Ataturk, but it has had Islamist parties in the past, and indeed more than one Islamist party has been banned by the Constitutional Court um, for, for being Islamist, which the Constitutional Court says is incompatible with Turkey's secular constitution. Uh, and indeed, the prosecutors brought a case against the AKP, as I'm sure you know, to try and ban the AKP for being an Islamist party, and it was rejected by only one vote in the constitutional court. So this issue is still on the table. My answer to it is that yes, the AKP, because of its roots and because of the people who are in it, does have religious tinges to it. But we use this phrase perhaps too much that we call it mildly Islamist. By that, what we're trying to say when we at The Economist analyze Turkey is that it's a little bit like a European Christian Democratic Party. It does have some religious aspects to it, and it does have some, some people, many of its supporters who are quite religious, but it's not the sort of, you know, fundamentalist, kind of aggressively religious uh, grouping that, that, that might disturb people. Uh, and it should, it should be, you know, people shouldn't be quite as frightened of it as some people have been. I, I, think, I think that's what I would say. And, and, and on the referendum issue, I mean, this, this, it's, we're, we're really on to very current, the very current situation in, in Turkey. I, I treat the constitutional changes that were approved by referendum on September 12th as, on the whole, increasing democratic uh, control over the military and increasing democratic say in judicial appointments. And therefore, broadly, I think that they were a step towards more liberalization and more freedom and making Turkey more compatible with a potential member of the European Union. But clearly, giving the democratic authority, in this case the government, more authority over the military and the judiciary does, does frighten some very secular Turks. And it was very interesting in this referendum to see that um, the people who voted no to the referendum were very concentrated in places like Istanbul, Izmir, and the western parts of Turkey, um, which is where you find a more sort of the more traditional wealthier Turks who are more frightened of or more worried about a poten the potential influence of, of Islamist uh, groups from, from Anatolia. 
And, and, and indeed, I wanted to ask you that um, because, you know, here in the United States, and especially when it's being covered abroad, people probably just say United States and don't realize the sharp differences between the various states. And it does seem that we focus too much on the larger cities in Turkey. And can you give us uh, your insight on how urban versus rural in different parts of the country uh, look, look at um, the AK, AKP? Well, yes. I mean, I think the, the, the heartland of the support for the AKP clearly is is um, Anatolia, which is which is the main the, the mainland of, of Turkey, actually. But it's particularly in in it, it's not just in rural areas. I mean, it is also in rural areas, but it's also in the sort of new, faster growing cities that you find in Anatolia, um, places like um, Kayseri, Konya, Gaziantep, um, uh, and Antalya, um, and the old traditional Turkey, which is particularly in the city of Istanbul. I mean, Istanbul is a huge city now. It's it's um, it's it's by some by some measures the biggest city in in Europe. Um, uh, that is not representative of the rest of Turkey. And I think a lot of it, it's interesting that you ask this question because a lot of the people who who cover Turkey or or write about Turkey or try and form a view of Turkey, they tend to do it on the basis of visiting Istanbul because Istanbul mm-hmm. is the place you fly into, and Istanbul is a great city and it's a beautiful city. And and but it's it's not it doesn't tell you everything that's going on in Turkey. And if you It'd be like going to the United States and just going to New York. It's sort of like the New York or the, or the London comparison in, in Britain, but it's or, or Paris in France. But it, I think in, in the case of Turkey, it's even more so because it really is true that the elite in Istanbul is different from 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 much of the rest of the country and presents a slightly misleading picture of the rest of the country. Uh, we, let's do the second trivia question. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had the pleasure of hosting economics editor Greg Ip for a Global IQ Audiocast, and I uh, was with Greg at the World Affairs Councils of America National Conference in Washington uh, this last week. So the uh, person who answers the next question correctly will win a copy of his new book, Greg Ip's new book, The Little Book of Economics. And the question is, Earlier today, Turkish Energy Minister Tanir Yildiz met with the Information and Economy Minister of which country to discuss a partnership to build a nuclear power plant in northern Turkey. Here's a hint. Talks on this issue are scheduled to resume when Prime Minister Erdogan visits this country later this week. France, North Korea, or South Korea? Be the first person to answer this question correctly and win a copy of Greg Ip's The Little Book of Economics. John, in preparing for this, I did a little bit of reading about the Turkey's, obviously, government and its structure, and it seems that it has an inherent um, way to limit the number of political parties that can have a, a seat in the nationals in the Grand Assembly. They have to reach a minimum of 10%. Um, you see that changing at any point, and with elections coming up in the next uh, uh, few months, in June, uh, do you see any possibility of the AKP not having the majority? Uh, on the first point, the 10% one, I mean, uh, which will obviously apply to, to the, the next election, as it, as it has done um, to the previous, the previous three. Um, in fact, I think it's been around since 1982. Um, it, it, I think it probably is a bit of a, a bit of an issue in Turkey because uh, well, the, 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 what the case that was was most striking was the election of 2002, when only two parties got into the Turkish Grand Assembly. They were the AKP, which had 34% of the vote 
and the CHP, which is the centre-left opposition party, which had 19% of the vote. Now, you put those two together and you only get 53% of the vote. And that meant that 47% of the voters were not represented in the Grand National Assembly because all the parties that they voted for got less than 10% of the vote. Um, I think that's, 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 a, that's a potential problem. Uh, the situation isn't quite as bad today because there are now three parties in the in the Grand National Assembly. Um, but I, I think when Turkey comes to talk about uh, revising its constitution, which the government and the opposition parties say they would like to do after the next election, I do think this issue of whether the 10% threshold should be lowered perhaps to 5% ought to, ought to be on the table. Um, and indeed, I, I would myself favor lowering the threshold. As to who will win in June, I think if you ask you asked me that today, um, you know, November the 8th, I would say the AKP will have a majority um, because they did well in the referendum. There's um, continuing infighting going on inside the main opposition CHP party, and the far far right nationalist party has also been weaker recently. So I think that the AKP are heading for another majority. But if you'd asked me that six months ago, I think I would have said, well, it's quite likely that they won't have an absolute majority. They will clearly be the biggest party. But, uh, you know, there are, things could change over the next six months. Thank you. Uh, the winner of trivia question number two, and the correct answer is South Korea, is Ricardo. Thank you very much, Ricardo. And you will receive a, a copy of Greg Ibb's book, The Little Book of Economics. John, going back to business and economic business for a moment. Um, Turkey is considered by many still to be a very difficult country to do business in. Uh, the World Bank ranks it at 73rd out of 183 countries, and within the OECD, it's ranked at or near the bottom uh, in lots of categories, uh, reg regulation, um, and also it's, it's viewed as a, quite, quite a corrupt country uh, for business. Do you agree with this? And um, what, what I might do. I it. mean, I think the corruption point is very difficult to judge, really. I mean, you know, many emerging markets, uh, many emerging economies do have corruption. Indeed, you find corruption in many rich countries as well. Um, I, I, I don't think Turkey probably is worse than other countries in that respect, um, including some of the countries on, from Eastern and Central Europe that are inside the, the European Union. And it's probably better than countries like, well, Russia, for example. Um, uh, but, you know, there is, there is definitely a problem there um, and it would be quite nice you know if more effort was made to to, to get rid of corruption or to reduce its reduce its impact um, as to doing business in general um, I mean this government uh, like some previous governments but this government in particular likes to to paint itself as a business-friendly government. And they have indeed done quite a lot to encourage foreign investment. Um, they've liberalized things like Turkish Airlines, which is much better than it used to be. Um, they've privatized quite a lot of companies. So it, it, it has quite a good record of, of making moves in a sort of pro-business direction. But it, it hasn't done enough on the general agenda of getting rid of red tape, um, deregulating, eliminating labor market rules. It's, this is a common story, I'm afraid, across a lot of Europe, as I'm sure you know. Um, but this government does, I think, need to do more because a country that wants to sustain the sort of growth rates that Turkey is enjoying now, I think, does need to do much more to, to make it a, a, an easier and freer place for, for companies to do business in.
An interesting uh, corollary with President Obama, Prime Minister Erdogan is pushing out a nationwide system for universal health care, which some say will serve as a counterbalance for those he has alienated in Turkey's secular camp. Uh, Jack asks us that question. Do you know anything uh, uh, about this uh, platform that he has? No, I mean they have. They clearly need to do more in 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 in, in a number of social areas. Um, I myself, I, I would put educational improvement actually ahead of of the healthcare needs in 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 Turkey. Uh, I might say I think I would put educational improvement ahead of healthcare needs in the United States as well because I think education in many ways is more important for the future. But yes, the, the Turkish health system uh, does have gaps, and I think there is a feeling, you know, if it's an aspiring member of the European Union, it needs to it needs to it needs to cover its people better for healthcare. It's got much. I, I, people always tell me it's got much better in the last 20 years, as indeed have I think Turkish Turkish universities. But you know, there, there is a way to go. Um, here's the opportunity to win a one-year subscription to The Economist, and this is for sports fans. Today, this famous former NBA player arrived in Istanbul to begin a contract with Team Besiktas of the Turkish League. John, you might have to help me with the pronunciation of that team. Besiktas, uh, I think. Thank you. He was quoted as saying, before I leave, I'll be speaking Turkish. Now, here's a hint for our Texans who are listening. Don't worry, it's not Dirk Nowinski. Stephen Nash, Allen Iverson, or LeBron James? Be the first person to answer that question correctly and win a one-year subscription to The Economist. And, uh, John, I want to thank you very much. First, I want to thank you for being our guest today on Global IQ, and uh, also congratulations on such a, a good report, Anchors Away, uh, which was published on October 23rd in The Economist, and you can download that by going to theeconomist.com. We always appreciate when journalists and editors such as John uh, join our program. I want to remind our audience, if you're not already a subscriber, please go today to Economist.com to start your subscription. And it's never too early, of course, to start your holiday shopping. Please also visit dfwworld.org forward slash Global IQ to sign up for the latest updates and information on Global IQ with The Economist. And there you can also register for our December 17th program focusing on the world in 2011 with the publication's editor, Daniel Franklin. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps. And remember, together The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.